0: Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the February 22nd edition. That's a hard number to say. The 22nd edition of National Reviews Radio Free California Podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at californiapolicycenter.org. You'd ordinarily find David Bonson right here with me, but I'm flying solo today. David is in the Bahamas while we are all here in frosty California, down here in Southern California. I think our high today was 55 when I went out this morning. It was 38, which is, um, you know, for those of us here, that's, that's chilly. Uh, we have a gigantic, I'm not just going to give you the weather report cause we have a gigantic show to get here despite David's absence. And, uh, I do want to start with the weather report though. Uh, you know, massive winter storm hitting, I don't know, something like almost every single country and millions of people, but, um, Out here in California, the fascinating thing, of course, is that despite the rain, despite the snow that is coming, it's Wednesday as we record this. This rain is supposed to start uh, tonight and tomorrow, Thursday. So by Friday, we're supposed to be fully engulfed in snow and rain. And you can guarantee, because you listen to Radio Free California, you will know this. You can guarantee that we will still have summer drought restrictions. The state will declare that we are in a climate crisis, an emergency. They will use this to uh, enhance, bolster enforce uh, all kinds of draconian regulations. But the remarkable thing, of course, is that we know how to resolve most of the quote-unquote climate crises that confront us here in California. So, for example, we've spent almost none of the billions of dollars that have been approved by voters over the decades to build new Reservoirs and something called off stream reservoirs or collection of water. So you'll remember, travel back with me in time to January. When the rain was pouring, just absolutely pouring down, record levels. And if you read the newspapers uh, last summer, it was we're in a climate crisis because it's not raining. Now we're in a climate crisis because it is. So millions of gallons of water just went roaring down our rivers, out of the Sacramento Delta, down every single riparian environment in California, out to the ocean. Um Where it, you know, maybe it helped fill back up the uh, Pacific Ocean or something. But the fact is, is that we could have collected all this except for the fact that we hadn't built the voter approved reservoirs. My friend Ed Ring, uh, who works on what we call the Department of Water and Power at California Policy Center, uh, had this to say at the time. Uh, With the quantity of water already delivered from the sky with so much more on the way, one might think the drought restrictions could be lifted, but not so fast. Despite predicting for years that Californians were going to need to rely less on a diminishing snowpack and more on harvesting water from storm runoff, the state has done little to take advantage of the new normal. So when the rain stops and the snow melts prematurely, Californians will likely face another year of drought restrictions." So Ed goes through, I'll put the the story in the show notes, but Ed goes through the various really kind of technical ways in which the state could very easily forestall a crisis this summer in water. But uh, much easier to declare it a climate crisis, which requires extraordinary sorts of things like the end of all fossil fuel uh, driven cars by 2035, uh, a shift to an all electric society in which natural gas plays no role or at least a limited role. Um... So you, you you can just imagine in a few months, you will be hearing this again, that we are in the middle of a climate crisis because there's not enough water. Ed concludes his piece, uh, again, in the show notes, there are plenty of ways to solve California's new set of water challenges, and there's plenty of money to get it done. What's lacking is the will to legislate remedies to the many bureaucratic and litigious obstacles. I haven't talked about this in this episode, but you'll all know that among these obstacles is the California Environmental Quality Act, better known to those of us who play in the policy world as CEQA. And this is the, the, the law which Californians created thinking it was going to preserve our beautiful environment, but which instead is used to absolutely tie up any kind of development, whether it's housing or reservoirs, new buildings, you name it. Uh, we can't build in California because somebody can appeal to CEQA as their way of shutting down a development they don't like. Unions use it all the time to shut down development that doesn't include a union-only work provision. Uh, Others use it because they just don't want something in their backyard. The environmentalists use it invariably because humans are bad and we're parasitic. So um, there's your weather report. Uh, Rainy, snowy, cold right now, and then this summer, new climate crisis, not enough water. The big news this week, uh, in some respects, you'll, you'll pardon me for talking about this because it's not, strictly speaking, a California story. But there's a California angle here, and that's that we're coming up on the February 24th, first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So what's that got to do with California? If you've been following what's going on at the federal level, you will know that there are some folks on the left who are pointing out that some folks on the right are opposed to supporting Ukraine. Uh, This famously started, I think, in the fall when Kevin McCarthy signaled his intention to end what he called the blank check to Ukraine. Uh, Reading more closely, what what Kevin McCarthy said was that Congress needs to perform better oversight into how that money is managed. And almost as if by theatrical uh, timing, there was a there was indeed a crisis in Ukraine uh, i think it was december and Ju- january we began to learn that in fact there were uh, there, there were some corruption allegations, which uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky very quickly uh, carried out some uh, punitive action, removed officials, and promised to clean this up. True to his word, McCarthy has uh, sent a delegation, a House Oversight Committee led by the uh, Chairman of Foreign Affairs, and I've got his name here, guys. Hang on one sec. But um, in that um, in that group of uh, congresspeople who went uh, to Ukraine, to Kiev, was uh, none other than California's own Daryl Issa. And Issa not only uh, said that he was content, that uh, he was confident that uh, Ukraine had, in fact, managed any kinds of accusations about corruption and was managing our money, our assets well, Uh, he went on to say, in fact, that it wasn't a question of whether but only when the U.S. will actually transfer aircraft and long-range artillery, especially uh, F-16 aircraft he's talking about there. So just so you'll know, in the interest of full disclosure, I am uh, a-, a boy who was born in the uh, Cold War era. I bear with me the scars of uh, Soviet hatred and uh, contempt and terror, uh, believed Even through my lefty days that the Soviet Union was a bad, bad example of the kind of Marxism that I thought should be deployed all over America. And um, so I look at a country like Russia today invading a neighbor like Ukraine as a almost singularly so far immoral, unethical, outrageous, unlawful Uh, inhuman criminal act. And for us to stand by now and say, let the Ukrainians handle it um, is the sort of thing that leads you, I think, into an actual World War III, which is what opponents of the Biden administration's approach here seem to suggest. So, Um, It it is inevitable that, in other words, Biden is stumbling toward uh, World War III because of his provocative, quote-unquote, I'm giving you air quotes, his provocative actions vis-a-vis Ukraine. So ISA goes over with uh, several others. There was, let me see, uh, head of the chief of the Foreign Affairs Committee, according to one story, the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee is Michael McCall, who's from Texas, if I recall. And, uh, and as I say, Daryl Ice is there. And there was another really good note here, I think, if you're a person who shares my perspective that Ukraine is significant to America and America to Ukraine, and that is that uh, we heard lots of praise from Republicans, uh, including again, Kevin McCarthy for Biden's remarks and his trip to Ukraine, uh, to Kiev. And uh, this this is a kind of a, a turnaround, right? We've had a lot of second guessing on this in the press. And I do think the media actually loves the story of Republicans in disarray. Um, they will cite people like Matt Gates and the execrable Marjorie Taylor Greene um, who really needs somebody to do spell checking and logic checking and legal checking on her uh, Twitter account. But um, you know, you, you cherry pick from the Republican Party a few people who are sort of on the margins in the way that you know I would like to think that a- a- AOC is on the margins of the Democratic Party. Um, but you pick those people out and you hold them up as evidence that the Republicans don't know what the hell they're doing. And... Then you take out of context something that Ron DeSantis said this week, which is that, you know, there's there's not going to be a blank check. Well, I think that kind of goes without saying nobody's writing blank checks. And the idea that we do need oversight of any kinds of shipments of weapons or money to Ukraine is absolutely, uh, of course, um, legitimate. Uh, And when DeSantis says, you know, the Biden administration is wrong to pay so much attention to Ukraine, he is saying it in this context that there's a lot that's wrong right now in domestic policy, that the Biden administration has actually generated crises. Um, you know, we could talk about inflation, we could talk about the COVID rollout, or the vaccine rollout, that is. Uh, we could talk about the supply chain disasters and trucking in the ports of LA, Long Beach, San Francisco, and Oakland. We could talk about the, the train derailment in Ohio, which is in the news, and say, yeah, this is a guy who literally cannot walk and chew gum at the same time. But that doesn't mean to me that having Biden go to Ukraine is a bad thing. It just means that this is a president who's incompetent and is incapable of focusing on the two things simultaneously, both foreign and domestic. So my own sense is uh, there is a happy consanguinity among conservatives and liberals, I think, generally about the Ukraine war effort, and uh, my own sense is if we do not fight the Russians there, we will be fighting them in the streets of Western Europe soon after. Uh, Lots of stories in the show notes there for you. So uh, let's let's move on quickly because uh, I didn't tell you this that we've got a couple of book authors coming up. I talked to uh, a guy named uh, Philip Howard, and then to my friend uh, Bob Lowen here, who's written an amazing and remarkable California story that I want to tell you about in just a moment. But before we get there. Um, New bills. Let's call this the uh, Department of New Bills. This is the season in which our uh, state legislators, our lawmakers, have the capacity to generate between 40 and 80, depending on their seat in the legislature, 40 or 80 bills per person. We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of new laws, uh, almost none of which, generally speaking. I, I, I cannot think back to a time when there was a law to repeal a law, so we're just simply piling on layers and layers of new sediment, like a geological kind of um, piling on here. What am I thinking of? Sedimentary rock, I think. But we get new laws atop new laws atop new regulations, and the place becomes slowly choked on its own legislation. So uh, what we've got this time, though, for the new bill that I wanted to really focus on, there's a couple, but let's let's start with one that... um, is a fascinating bill that would ban. It's Assembly Bill 935 by Bay Area Assemblyman Damon Connolly. He's a Democrat from San Rafael. It would prohibit the sale of tobacco products to anyone born on or after January 1st, 2007. So that's anybody who is today a 16-year-old and younger. Um, we'll never, ever, if this bill passes, be able to buy tobacco products. Now, we could argue about the health benefits of tobacco. Not a smoker myself, a very very rare exceptional moment when I smoke a cigar, just, you know, not into inhaling smoke into my lungs, but that's my personal preference. And the idea that you can simply write a law like this and ban cigarettes and tobacco products in general to every Californian born after 2007 and and, and let me just exp- let me unpack that for one second before I finish the thought. The law says that basically we will if you were born in 2007 or thereafter you will never be able to buy cigarettes anybody born today can't buy cigarettes in California if this bill passes anybody born after 2007 can't buy cigarettes in this state so it's a way of phasing in a total ban on cigarettes and I predict as you probably already have a couple of outcomes of this that are totally unintended and utterly utterly predictable number one Again, to climb into the time capsule here, the, the time machine, and travel back to the 90s, some of you will remember Prop 10. That was Rob Reiner, the actor, writer, director, the Hollywood guy, famously played uh, Mike Stivic or Meathead in All in the Family in my youth. Um, Rob Reiner... Uh, helped fund and draft and succeed in passing among voters a statewide ballot proposition called Prop 10. That was the tobacco tax that was going to fund children and families first. My point here in traveling all the way back to 1998 and Rob Reiner and his um, fascinating cinematic history is only to tell you that we have now built an entire social welfare system, a way of financing social welfare programs in California that depends upon people continuing to smoke. If people in California stop smoking, the tax generated just for that one program, and there are others. But the tax generator for that program disappears with the cessation of smoking. So on the one hand, you've got the public health issue, which we can all agree probably is important that people probably shouldn't smoke. And if they do, they should probably try to cut down or stop. But the fact is, if they stop altogether, if everybody stops altogether as this law would have us, uh, then there's no more tax money pouring millions of Billions into a range of social uh, social welfare programs. So um, I'll put in the show notes the the range of programs. But the bottom line is the fiscal impact of the amendment. I'm reading here from this very uh, obscure academic website called Wikipedia and it says fiscal impact the fiscal impact of this amendment led to almost a double increase of revenue for the state going from about four hundred million dollars up to seven hundred fifty million dollars in the following years in the state general fund and county general funds the revenue for both also doubled so huge money attached to the continuation of people's addiction in California to nicotine point number two is people ain't going to stop just because the law says they can't. What happens in a prohibition society? Uh, We already know this. You don't have to be a student of history to recall that uh, organized crime flourished when the federal government shut down uh, alcohol beverage consumption. Uh, Consumption didn't stop. Production didn't stop. Shipment didn't stop. What happened was that it all turned into a black market scheme in which organized crime benefited tremendously, and it helped fund their growth and expansion from the 20s and 30s I guess the 30s, up to the moment it was repealed under uh, FDR. Uh, It really gave the mob a gigantic boost uh, in addition to running all other kinds of things like drugs and prostitution and extortion games. uh, Prohibition of alcohol was huge. And we don't have to travel back to prohibition under FDR to know that this is the likely outcome of this tobacco ban in California, because the next thing that happens, uh, of course, is that when you start to raise the taxes on, when you raise the taxes on tobacco, as Prop, uh, 19, uh, Prop 10 did in 1998, uh, you start to see other things happen. Uh, for instance, a couple of famous federal cases, uh, one in which uh, Hezbollah uh, activists, what do you call you call participants, members, Hezbollah members, members of Hezbollah from Lebanon, who had moved to the United States, settled in North Carolina, began packing up cigarettes, which they bought wholesale in North Carolina at a low, non-tax price, and they shipped these into places like Michigan and New York, where they were able to sell them through uh, conniving retailers at a lower wholesale rate to those folks, and they turned around and were able to sell them for the regular retail price, generating an income, uh, in the one case of the North Carolina to Michigan deal, uh, of about $3 a pack profit for these Hezbollah guys, who then used the cash to buy weapons and send those weapons and cash to the Hezbollah cell operating in Beirut. So my, my point in bringing all this up, I think I think it's obvious, is that if we make it difficult to purchase cigarettes as people decide they're going to smoke anyway, we are going to see smuggling here. And we don't have a great apparatus in place for really invariably blocking that. You know who knows this? Uh, Rob Bonta who just put out a, a press release a couple of days ago. What was this? Uh, a couple of weeks ago now, actually. January the 11th. Here it is. Headline, Attorney General Bonta announces three arrests in $7 million tobacco excise tax fraud scheme. Same kind of deal. Bunch of guys buy a bunch of cigarettes in a low-tax state like North Carolina, ship them into California with phony labels on them, and sell them on the streets here to retailers who cover up the, um, the, the, the scheme. And Bonta got these people much as we got Al Capone, and that is uh, on tax evasion. So in January, we know that smuggling cigarettes was already a bit an ongoing business enterprise in California. This is the tip of the iceberg here, that it funds really bad people of nefarious intent. And then that money is used to fund America's enemies and California's enemies are street gangs, terrorist groups. California, once again, dangerous to America, dangerous to the planet. Uh, Going back to Ukraine for one second, a a point I'll just raise, we could easily supply Europe uh, with all the natural gas it needs to uh, take care of its problem with Russian natural gas. But of course, California won't do that. When I say we, I mean California, one of the largest reservoirs of uh, so far unprocessed natural gas deep beneath the soil, We could have that out of the soil into tankers and moved across the world and relieve the pressure on Western Europe. But we don't do that because California doesn't really, truly care about the rest of the world. We say we do. We say this is important. But then we act in ways that are obviously contradictory. Uh, Speaking of Rob Bonta, uh, the the, uh, attorney general is now uh, the author of and and banging the drum for Senate Bill 478. this is a really, really critical new bill. You're going to love this. Um, here's Rob saying that, uh, and, and see if you can identify the common theme here in the national debate. Uh, here's, the, here's the press release. It says, whether renting a car, booking a hotel room, or purchasing concert tickets, we all know how frustrating it is to get to the checkout and find out that something advertised as one price actually costs more. He's talking here about parking and resort fees. Yes, yes, yes. This is what's on every American's mind, every Californian's mind, is the hidden resort fee in an amusement park or hotel. Uh, I'm not suggesting that I like resort fees. Uh, It seems to me that, you know, Bonta's sort of on the right uh, point here, but why not let the free market handle this? The way that I do is I make sure that this is disclosed up front before I actually uh, book a room. Uh, But that's too obvious. And so Rob Bonta has uh, authored this bill, SB 478, which you've already noticed, really mirrors eerily, uh, unless you're a conspiracy theorist, it mirrors eerily the same sorts of line that Biden offered in the State of the Union. There's so much going on in the world, it's so deeply troubling, and really requires the president's urgent action, ditto, as Ron DeSantis said, for domestic policy, which is all cattywampus. And instead, the president spent time, time on his State of the Union address, uh, address to address that really pressing concern on every American's lips. What are you going to do about resort taxes? What do you do about parking fees at hotels? So, um, and absolutely, if the Attorney General really wanted to focus on hidden fees, he might actually examine uh, natural gas costs to Californians right now. We'll talk about that in just a sec. Or, for instance, uh, the fines and fees associated with misdemeanor violations. CPC, California Policy Center, has done a lot of work on this. I'll include a story in the show notes that I wrote called Keep Breaking the Law, Your Government Needs the Money, in which— um, we examined how it is that you can be driving through a place as I did. This is where the story occurred to me. I was driving through Shasta a few years ago, Shasta County, and I got pulled over for doing 72 and a 65. Yes, seven miles over the speed limit in a remote stretch of Shasta. I think everything in Shasta is pretty remote, but uh, there it was. A guy pulled me over and accused me of driving way too fast. Of course, I had lumber trucks, you know, Racing past me with several hundred tons of what looked like uh, beautifully fresh cut wood, Uh, sports cars racing by me. I was in the slow lane doing 72. The guy pulls me over, you know, whatever. I get the ticket, and there is a range, a menu of additional fees that have been tacked on to my ticket. I think the ticket was like, I don't know, $200 or something, but the fines and fees tripled the cost of that I paid close to seven hundred dollars if I remember correctly uh, in order to uh, pay off that fine because of fees for things like the wildlife um, uh, uh, some wildlife law night court I didn't go to night court Uh, the state's DNA testing lab it was almost as if because i had been driving 72 and a 65 they could grab me by the ankles and shake me down for loose change and you know that's a that's a big number. That's a lot of money for a lot of people. And uh, then I started talking to defense attorneys, I know, who told me that yeah, this is a real problem for people who are especially if you're working class or poor. You get a ticket uh, for some minor sort of you know, speed or traffic violation or riding your skateboard is now a crime, of course, despite what all the bumper stickers said in my youth, skateboarding is a crime. And so you get a ticket for one thing, and then the total amount after all the hidden fees that Rob Bonta is not concerned about because they feed his allies, um, you find out that your ticket for $35 skateboarding in Huntington Beach is now uh, $700. And if you can't pay that, then you either do community service— and miss time on your job, which causes you not to be able to make your rent or pay your car insurance, and now you're deeply in trouble. These kinds of things really imperil families and communities. Uh, One of the defense attorneys told me the story, which I checked out, absolutely true, of a woman who made nine days of freeway cleanup out of ten that were required on the tenth day. She showed up early at court with her attorney to beg the judge to let her postpone her tenth day of uh, freeway side cleanup, and the judge said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what's going on? And she said, I'll lose my job if I, if I don't go to work this afternoon as a waitress. And the judge said, but you're supposed to be out there right now, are you not? And she said, yes, Your Honor, but judge cut her off. Bailiff, take her out. And a sheriff came in, handcuffed the woman, and threw her into jail for, I think it was three days or something. Woman lost her job. A woman lost her apartment and was living with family and friends at the time I talked to her defense attorney with her son. So these are laws which the state could easily rectify on its own. Talk about hidden fees. They don't seem to matter. The Government doesn't seem to care about hidden fees when it comes to the government, because that's different. But if it's a corporation, a hotel, for instance, that charges you thirty five bucks a day to park your car or to you know as a resort fee, that's just unthinkable. Unconscionable, we've got to end it because that's just not how we do it in America. or, as Rob Bonta says in his press release, because in California, we believe that when you make a purchase, your final purchase price shouldn't be a mystery. The price advertised should be the price you pay. Simple as that. Here, here, Rob. Uh, so why don't you take care of that? A friend of the show who asked that I not use his name pointed out that uh, in another place, hidden fees exist uh, um, on your cell phone bill. He sent me a copy of his bill. And sure enough, this is a California bill. Um, there's a range of tiny, tiny fees, which individually just don't seem like much. They're like an inconvenience and kind of a, you know, you could be angry about the principal. But the total was about $6 a month for this person, and it includes things like the California Advanced Service Fund surcharge, California Emergency Telephone Users users Surcharge, the PUC fee, that's Public Utilities Commission fee, uh, California Prepaid 988 Surcharge, uh, Teleconnect Fund, Universal Lifeline Surcharge. There are, I think, 12 here, 12 different hidden fees, Rob Bonta, all of which Go to the government. So $6 doesn't sound like a lot per consumer, but it adds up to millions of dollars. And for all of us, if the principle is important, Rob, if hidden fees are bad, if they are unconstitutional and not the California way, then how about starting with government, right? Okay. So um, I want to talk also about uh, another bill here. And I, I really want to approach this. Sensitively, uh, because I think that nuance is required. Our old friend, uh, Scott Wiener, state senator, Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland, that area. Uh, Scott Wiener's at it, uh, this time with a bill to repeal Prop 8. Now, I wish I had my friend, Bob Lowen, who's sitting here quietly and minding his own business to get— I wish he could get on the microphone and talk to me about Prop 8. Prop 8 came in the, um, the early 2000s, 20—what uh, was that— I have uh, 15 years ago, so we're talking, yeah, late, early 2000s, right? 2007, 2008, something like that, Prop 8. And it banned gay marriage in California. It was voted, it was approved by voters in California overwhelmingly to ban gay marriage. Now, there's a lot of nuance to unpack here. Uh, I myself am not opposed to the government issuing whatever you want to call them, domestic partnerships, contracts between domestic people. Um, I just don't think it's the state's business to tell people who want to come together in a domestic partnership to own homes, have hospitaliza- hospitalization uh, rights to raise children. That's just not the state's job. Uh, if David were here, he would disagree with me on first principles, and I get that. I'm just saying this is just my opinion. Uh, reasonable people can disagree on this. So I'm not opposed to what Scott Weiner wants to do, which is to repeal Prop 8. Now, you're probably wondering, wait a minute, gay marriage is legal in California? Yes. Gay marriage is legal in the entire United States because of a 2013 Supreme Court decision which cleared the way for same-sex marriage all over the country. But Prop 8 is still on the books, and this just outrages Scott Weiner because, you know, what if it's like one of those horror movies where the body is buried, you know, the bad guy is buried in the grave? What movie am I thinking of? David would know. Uh, a woman's name, it'll come to me. Anyway, reaches up through the earth and grabs the uh, hand of an innocent victim and pulls that person to hell. So um, Scott Weiner, very, very upset about this. Very upset about this. Now, let me. Ha- having said that I am absolutely for the state getting out of the business of who gets to declare themselves married or whatever term you want to use, you could call it a domestic contract or whatever. The slippery slope here in California cannot be... Ignored, So you can imagine Scott Weiner declaring this like just sort of the end game. He just wants to get Prop 8 off the books because federal law transcends, supersedes um, all state law anyway. But nevertheless, he wants it off the books. Fine. So this, this actually contradicts what I was saying earlier, that there are no laws that actually remove old laws. Here's one. Um, I'm not sure it's necessary, but there it is. But my friends who do not like gay marriage for a range of reasons um, might argue what I think is a reasonable argument, that in California it never ends there. If a good idea like gay marriage comes along, it's not enough that people are allowed to enter into a same-sex marriage. It must be insisted upon as their right to do it in your church in your restaurant, in your home. We've all heard the stories. They are not apocryphal of bakers being sued because they refuse to make a cake for a gay couple. So what happens if Scott Weiner succeeds with removing Prop 8 from state law? Well, gay marriages continue because they're protected by federal law. But the next step might be that some Catholic church, some evangelical church, a Jewish temple, a mosque, you name it, a Hindu temple, pick your pick your favorite faith group or non-faith group, Uh, the state will say, you know what, this is such a great idea that gay people can be married that it is outrageous that anyone would discriminate against them, and since churches are actually sort of, in some respect, licensed entities operating in the state, doesn't the state have a responsibility to make evangelicals and Catholics and Muslims and Jews and others, Buddhists, marry gay people, whether they want to or not? So some of the resistance from people, I think, uh, to the gov- to, to Scott Wiener's bill here, um, besides the fact that it's Scott Wiener pushing it, is that we know Scott Wiener never stops. There's no limiting principle at, 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 in operation here with Scott Wiener. Uh, you, if you've paid attention to the podcast for more than a minute, uh, well, more than this episode, you'll know. Right, that uh, among the things that Scott Weiner has done, uh, let me find my note here that I wrote. I just did a quick off the top of my noggin survey here of some of the stuff Scott Weiner has done, and now I seem to have lost it. But this is the same guy who helped, uh, who authored the bill that made, here we go that made uh, California a trans-sanctuary state, right? So whatever else you think about trans-sexual uh, adults, the fact that uh, transsexual kids are now encouraged to come here with or without parental consent and hide out and be wards of the state is highly problematic in a number of ways. Um, it was Scott Weiner who in July was all about monkeypox, remember, talking about how this was a national crisis and that the federal government and the state government weren't doing enough and that Republicans hated gay people and wanted them to die they have monkeypox, uh, but could not be troubled at the same time, Scott Weiner could not be troubled to ask gay Californians who are attending huge festivals in the summer to maybe just, you know, literally... Uh, you know uh, maybe practice safe sex by abstaining you know get together enjoy your friends have a drink uh, enjoy San Francisco step over the needles and the humans uh, sprawled out on the sidewalk but no Weiner could not ask them to do that would not ask him to do that in fact suggested they all ought to come and have a great time and that what they really should be allowed to do is attend these events and engage in what one might call unsafe sex that is to say sex with people they don't know well um, and that vaccination should be made everywhere, made 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 common everywhere. So um, that's our Scott Weiner. Uh, the sex of, uh, sex offender registration status uh, that involves minors. So you know, if, uh, if an adult has sex with a minor, uh, Wiener wanted you'll remember to reform that so that gay couples got the same protection as straight couplings uh, that included an adult and a minor. And hey, I'm all for equity, but how about we just raise the standard for everybody and say, hey, if you're an adult, don't have sex with a minor, right? I mean, this this is not an insane notion, but uh, Scott Weiner wanted to lower the bar. Um, there was, as I said, SB 107, that was the Make Us a State uh, Sanctuary for Trans. He lowered the age of the vaccine consent to 12. That was SB 866 about uh, two years ago. It was during COVID, and his argument was, hey, kids' health is too, too precious to be left in the hands of mere parents. So let's drop the age of consent to a 12 so that your average sixth or seventh grader can sort of make life changing, life altering, potentially damaging decisions about vaccinations. I'm um, going to wrap up here. With um, just one last thing, I promised to get to uh, Gavin Newsom and his high anxiety. You know, just before I walked in here, I was being flooded with new information. I I mentioned early that David likes to laugh and rib me about the fact that the run list frequently changes multiple times. Well, as I'm walking in, I see that Gavin Newsom is now going after Marjorie Taylor Greene, who tweeted out something like, hey, maybe red states should make it illegal for five years for Democrats. Who move into their state to be allowed to vote you know a five-year delay for a Democrat to kind of get accustomed you know like the Democrat moves to Texas or Tennessee or Florida or whatever and they they should kind of like take five years to get used to the room temperature before they uh, opine on politics or actually vote Um, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene but that was enough for Gavin Newsom to uh, let me see if I can get this up on my phone here real quickly Um, yeah, Green says uh, if, you, if Democrats move to a red state, they shouldn't be allowed to vote for five years. Um, keep in mind, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So Newsom says, to state the obvious, this is completely insane and dangerous. It goes against the very core of who we are and what America stands for. Every member of the Republican Party should speak out against this. <sighs> um, this is a deeply troubling guy. Uh, you know, we—it's the same day. I want to—I want to note that the state budget uh, deficit rose again. We've talked about this in the show. I won't belabor the point, but last year we had a mythical, fantastic, fantastical hundred billion dollar budget surplus. This year, what we've got is a, a deficit uh, thirty billion and counting. Uh, On the same day that the budget deficit information comes out, what does Gavin Newsom want to talk about? Marjorie Taylor Greene. Of course. Uh, I'll leave that one to you. So, um... Let me just point out that uh, the governor is also proposing that uh, the legislature draft a penalty for gasoline companies because they gouged us. Remember, just to reprise that story, if you weren't paying attention, our gas prices rose dramatically over the last year all over the country. But California was the very worst. We had the highest gas prices in the nation, including Hawaii. Our gas prices, that's right. We're worse than Hawaii, which has to ship in every eyedropper full of gasoline from someplace else. We can actually produce oil here in California. We could refine it ourselves if we simply had the will to do so. We also have boutique regulations that create a really exotic market for gas uh, prices. Uh, the regulations require summer and winter blends and switching from one to the other costs billions of dollars to gas to gasoline uh, consumers. So our gas market is out of the out of this world, it is just insane. Um, but when the gas crisis hit, when the prices skyrocketed last summer, Newsom, of course, pointed—you know, a kind of Marjorie Taylor Green-like—he pointed to some mystery cabal of oil companies that were aiming specifically to try to destroy California. Weird how they just picked us, these oil companies, just picked us to uh, to pay higher prices and nobody else in the nation. Um, so Newsom, of course, I guess clever for some people, um, to the rest of us, a man who is either just immoral or uninformed or both, um, argues that, in fact, we need to fight back against the price gougers and has encouraged the legislature to offer a, uh, a penalty for oil companies operating in California. Now, who do you suppose will pay that? Right? I don't mean... In the first instance, in the first moment, who will pay for higher gas prices You know, when the state says to oil companies, you're going to pay more because you gouged us? Yes, yes, yes. A check will be written by the oil companies. But who will ultimately pay it? The oil companies aren't going to take this in the shorts. They're not simply going to pay that out of you know, their maintenance fee or something like that. They're going to raise the price at the pump. This is absolutely predictable. It is not... It may be unintended. I don't think it is. But Gavin Newsom has to know how supply and demand works at this relatively modest level. Uh, the gas prices that you and I pay will go up if Gavin Newsom and his price gouging commission have their uh, their opportunity to do so. Same story, idea, same concept, different story. Newsom is now asking for an investigation into the natural gas uh, surcharge or you know, the price rise that we've all probably seen on your natural gas bills. My poor little mother in her early 80s, she doesn't listen to the show, she doesn't know how to use podcasts, is walking around right now bundled up in sweaters in Mission Viejo, California uh, with her air conditioning, I'm sorry, her uh, HVAC turned off almost completely. She very generously turned it on when her elderly friends came over to play bridge the other night, and one of them complained, "Oh my gosh, I'm a popsicle!" So uh, she turned it up to 62. Uh, it is cold in my mom's house. Growing up there was like growing up in a gulag sometimes, and not because they were terrible people, but because it really was just bitter in the winter and hot in the uh, in the uh, summer. We had heating and air conditioning, but my parents, especially my mom, just didn't want to put it, you know, turn it on. So. Um, and she's especially worked up about this right now because her friends are talking about gas bills going up two, three, five, ten times. Neighbor of hers, she points out, every time somebody asks my mom to, t- please, please turn it up. You know, they're blowing into their hands and stomping their feet in her kitchen. She turns it up to 66 and she says, well, you know, uh, uh, Kay down the street, she's paying $500 a month now for her gas bill. Um but why do we do that? Why why is this necessary? Well, it's necessary because we have lots of hidden state taxes. We talked earlier about Rob Bonta and his unwillingness to look at hidden taxes, hidden fees that bedevil us, and they all enrich the party of government. Um, it's you know the cigarette tax this is a series of hidden fees you might argue that go to fund government programs i didn't point out by the way that that tax. you'll pardon me for jumping around here but that tobacco tax 1998 the rob reiner deal who was the arch backer of that the california teachers association why because the tobacco tax went to fund early childhood development which in includes K-12 education. So government unions get in on the act. They love these hidden taxes. They love the natural gas tax. Government unions love this stuff because it pours cash into government coffers. And then the government officials, our lawmakers, our regulators, they get to determine who among the privileged few will get this cash back in the form of a, a rebate, perhaps. We saw that with the natural gas price spike. But the governor's all worked up right now about the problems of natural gas, and he wants to eliminate fossil fuels in California. And he can't understand the connection, he says. So um, David and I have talked about this, but there's no question that the retail rate for natural gas is just soaring. and that uh, the California climate credit uh, that will go that has been going out to people to sort of offset that is paid for by taxes on natural gas. Taxes that raise the price of natural gas, the government collects the tax, and then returns it to us in a more modest form uh, called consumer relief, right? So uh, we've got that going on. And just one last thing, and then I'm going to run on to my friend Bob here, and we're going to talk about his great book – a friend of mine who keeps a boat down at the Long Beach Marina points out that, again, unintended consequences, that the improvements in Long Beach—now, Long Beach is a Democrat city. It is run by government unions and Democrats who collude to destroy a once-great city that had terrific prospects. I could talk for hours about how wonderful Long Beach could and should be, uh, but instead it is run by and for government par- the, the party of government. So, Newsom's attempt to really end fossil fuels has limited Long Beach's capacity to tax that fuel. And that tax revenue on that fuel has been used for redevelopment in Long Beach, including redevelopment of the marina, where my friend keeps his boat. So my friend sent me this uh, newsletter to all boat owners. Um, It says, hey, Boat Owners Association and boat owners in Long Beach, make your voices heard. Long Beach projects will be jeopardized once bill-limiting oil production goes into effect. This is uh, government, uh, Governor Newsom's uh, bill, I'm sorry, Senate Bill 1137, which Newsom signed into law in September, um, will make oil drilling and refining in California illegal, right? It's going to just wipe it out. Well, along with that come a whole lot of government programs, again, just like tobacco taxes, that depend on the continued use of fossil fuels. So here's my prediction with both tobacco and oil that those who benefit from either of these programs like bone owners in Long Beach and government unions that love all the tax revenue flowing in from cigarettes and or oil they're going to object they're going to you're going to see the teachers union go nuts if cigarette smoking starts to go down they're going to claim a crisis for which they need new taxes to fund education the uh, the marina will not get rebuilt it is seriously jeopardized down there in Long Beach um, because and it won't it won't be built because oil produces tax revenue and tax revenue Supports redevelopment of downtown Long Beach and its marina. So you're going to start to see this. I was up in Kern County last week visiting uh, donors in Bakersfield and to a person they raised the fact that uh, Gavin Newsom has shut down oil drilling and the environmentalists are having a field day killing oil field jobs. These are blue collar jobs and better, you know, college educated people work in the oil industry too, but these are very highly paid jobs. They are very sophisticated and they throw off not just great employment numbers for Places like Kern County, which is like the Texas of California in terms of oil production, they do more than that. They throw off tax revenue, which these local governments, county and city, use to fund a range of social services. So you kill oil, you throw people into unemployment, you end the industry, we lose our expertise to ever drill again. And you kill the tax revenue that pours into a, a range of social welfare programs on which the poor, the elderly, and others who are, you know, marginalized in our state, who really, really have come to depend. Um, and I'm not making a philosophical argument here for a big, vast welfare state supported by oil. Uh, you know, this is not Venezuela, but I am saying that there are unintended but utterly predictable consequences here. So um, let let's just move on. Okay, so enough of uh, arguing with Gavin Newsom and Marjorie Taylor Greene and oil prices and tobacco taxes. With me next uh, is a wonderful reprieve from all that. Um, it's it, it, my friend Robert Lowen, uh, Bob Lowen. Uh, Bob and I work together at California Policy Center. I say we work, he's on the board of directors, but still works like a full time employee. But My interest in this book that he's written that I'm going to tell you just a little bit about and that he's going to discuss at some length is a really fascinating California story, not just because Bob was born and raised and has lived his whole life here in California, but because his book, um, and Bob, I'll just talk to you directly, the book is Lioness of Leiden, and Leiden is uh, in the Netherlands. Um, Tell us um, why... Californians or people who are interested in California ought to care about a book that is about World War II and the Netherlands. What's the connection?
1: Well, first of all, my mother-in-law, Hetty Kraus, born 1920, died in 1994, uh, lived in California her whole uh, last part of her adult life, basically, and she lived in Leisure World. Where all the old people hang out uh, for the last seventeen years of her life. This
0: is Leisure World in Orange County. For those who I, I don't, I think it's only really an, a SoCal phenomenon, but maybe it, there are elsewhere. But there, there are retirement communities.
1: It's a retirement community. There's lots of clubs, lots of fun things to do. So she was in the garden club, and she was in uh, uh, the the uh, camera club, and she was a golfer, and so people would see this little old lady. Uh, You know chugging around in the retirement community and nobody knew that she was a war hero and uh, even in our own family it was like pulling teeth to get information from her about those days during the war Uh, but she had uh, she was a student at Leiden University uh, just about 10 miles from The Hague uh, when uh, Hitler invaded her country and people were surprised by the invasion because uh, he'd sworn to keep it neutral uh, you know, good, good idea to rely on dictators for that mm-hmm. kind of promise. <laughs> and uh, 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 Hetty, though, had seen it coming, and as soon as it happened, she joined the resistance. Soon she could find a resistance to join, and uh, and she uh, uh, went through the war and uh, and evolved as a young person uh, under the the boot of uh, of Nazi domination of her country. Well,
0: you know, I. I uh I have been lucky to read the book, which is now out in print, and it's a really lovely book to look at. You must be very proud to hold it. Um, but I got to see it when it was just in draft form. You know, A couple of manuscripts, read through those, and I saw the dramatic improvements. I will offer you this one sadness that I've told you before, that there was this great piece of history, which I think will become a prequel one day, I hope, which is about how Hetty's family came to be a fairly... Estimable family in Dutch society, uh, owing to I think it's wealth generated in Indonesia. I want to say, Yeah. Um, Dutchies, Indies. Yeah. yeah. So that part's gone. This is a much more trim, cinematic, vigorous, dram- I mean, just really dramatic telling of her life. And um, maybe you can, can you find a place, you can just read something to give people a sense of what the story is about. And I want people to remember, this is a young woman. She's like, what, 19, 20 years old when this is happening.
1: Correct, correct. She was from, she just turned 20 on the invasion day, May 10, 1940, uh, and it lasted for about five years. They 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 signed the armistice in May of 1945. So uh, she was, uh, it's really a coming of age story in many yeah. in many ways. Uh, so she was uh, she just developed her first boyfriend uh, they'd had some romantic of- occasions, but they were fighting the last time they saw each other and uh, just personal fighting yes, yeah. yes, In just having personal, an argument yeah. something that seemed really important to them at the time, right. and then the war started, and everything uh, uh, that seemed important wasn't right. and uh, they started seeing what was important, which was to fight the evil empire that was taking over their country so here's a little. Uh, vignette from that from one of Hetty's stories something she told me Uh, I've of course the whole book is fiction I fictionalized it to uh, uh, bring it to life Uh, so let me just read this very short little little piece it takes place in 1944 toward the end of the war Hetty stared at the hand grenades tucked tightly into the suitcase she had opened on the floor of Case's living room I wonder what would happen if one of these little guys went off right now. She felt the weight of one of them in her hand. It would obliterate everything living in this room, Case stared at the tiny bomb. But they're safe as long as you don't pull the pin. I've been daydreaming about what our boys will do to the Germans with these. She carefully replaced the hand grenade and closed the suitcase. I just need to get them to Delft, right? Case nodded. Meet your contact behind the warehouse across the street from the tram station, he said, taking a bite of toast. The Germans haven't been searching the passenger luggage at Dolph Station recently, so this should be relatively easy. An easy trip sounds good, said Hetty, as she practiced carrying the suitcase around Case's living room. In case it isn't easy, Case held a small white capsule with his fingers. Hide this. Hetty glanced skeptically at Case. Cyanide, he whispered, dropping it into her hand. Oh, said Hetty, examining the capsule between her fingers, you don't think this will be easy at all, do you? (laughs) (laughs) It's such a
0: grim moment. And at the same time, it sounds like she had a sense of humor sort of.
1: The reality, she definitely had a sense of humor. When she told her stories, almost always there was a humorous element to it. This particular story about the about uh, smuggling hand grenades in the, under the noses of the Germans, uh, she told it as, as kind of high humor hmm. because they, because she had a, a, a former boyfriend got on the tram with her and kept wanting to kind of make whoopee with her, wanted to take her out, and, uh, and, and she kept thinking about the hand grenades in her suitcase and uh, knew that she she had to uh, turn him down, even though she was uh, interested in him.
0: So, um, you were saying that this was not a, these were not stories that she told you. Like she didn't just talk about this all the time. She no. lived this life. I'm reminded of you know when I when I read this, I was thinking about all the people I have met in my life who you know even if they're not old, but particularly with older people, you wonder what they've seen, who they've been, what they've done. Um, and in the case of a lot of the folks I grew up around, you know, back in the 60s when I was a little boy, in the 70s, some of, the, some of my neighbors were guys who'd been in, like, you know, Korea and Vietnam. Um, a few of them had been in World War II. Uh, and I knew them as, you know, Mr. So-and-so or Colonel So-and-so if they insisted mowing their lawn. And this is a lady who, as you say, was living right down the street from where I grew up in a retirement community playing golf and working in the gardening club. And I, I, you know, I can't imagine that many people there, because she doesn't sound self-revealing. She sounds like the kind of person who's very, very quiet. I doubt many people in her own community had any idea this was anybody other than you know, a sweet lady who golfs and plays, you know, plays a mean game of golf and
1: knows how to garden. Well, you have to take into account that she was damaged by the war. I mean, this, the war, was she, the, she tough, suffered terribly from the war and you have to read the book to get all the ways that she suffered but she came out of it with PTSD in a significant way she had what they call survivor syndrome when I met her she was already seeing a psychiatrist on a regular basis to deal with her war traumas and she dealt with them all the way until her death and so there were occasions when I would try to gently Bring some of the war stories out of her because I was so interested in them. Uh, and she would just simply literally dissolve when she tried to tell it. And she couldn't finish the story. What do you mean dissolve? Like cry? Cry, yeah, cry, cry? Wow. cry and and lose control. And, uh, and then we had to comfort her and, and then not talk about it again for a little while and it was uh, no it was and and when you you find this out as i in my research for this book i've read many other books sort of like it and and uh, uh not necessarily about the dutch resistance but but um what you find is that people are very reluctant to tell their story and the reason they're reluctant is because it's so complicated for them psychologically. Yeah. Nobody none of us here in this country in our age bracket has really gone through the trauma that she went through, when you're totally at the mercy of an imperial power that has taken over your country, taken over the government of your country, and basically goes around picking up people off the street if they're Jews or gypsies or Seventh-day Adventists and hauling them off to camps. Yeah. And, uh, and, and a few brave people hid those people. And a few brave people, like my, my mother-in-law, um, uh, brought them food, money, you know ration cards things like that to so they could stay hidden and uh some of them did and survived and many of them were caught and those who were caught hiding them got to go to the camps too yeah so it's just a, an absolutely devastating thing maybe it's a, a maybe there's some co- comparison you know to what's going on in ukraine but uh, uh not for us we're not really don't have that experience
0: you you um and and I, I don't think there's a spoiler in this. I just wanted to ask you because I, I remember, you know, I'm connecting this also again back to California. When she first came back, did she not live up in the Bay Area where she worked at a? I want to say like a girls' school or a religious mm-hmm. school of some sort. No, it maybe?
1: was a it was a um, uh, a rich kids' school. Rich kids. I school. call it a rich kids' school. Okay. I don't know that. Maybe that's not. Can not, you not that's not probably fair. Uh, but she she was her her story is she she really wanted to get out of Europe after the war. And she met Walter, who's my father-in-law, and, uh, uh, and they, got, they got married in two weeks after they met. And uh, they uh, honeymooned at uh, Lake Lugano in Switzerland just outside of uh, uh, Italy, and uh, my wife was conceived near Lake Lugano, so my mother-in-law told me. She's a very earthy woman who just told her, <laughs> would, tell you, would tell you everything you know, about her life. And, uh, uh, and then they moved to uh, South America and lived on a farm in South America. So this is my, this is my sequel, okay, because it's not in the book. And uh, they get to this farm in South America where she takes a bottomland area that was all swamp, and she figures out how to grow a cash crop there, mint. Which is, they then export the essence of mint and make a decent living off of the mint from that she's created on this, in this farm. So then along comes something called the Alliance for Progress. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you could say this is the political part. Okay. Yes. But it's not really. It's just, it's just her story. And the Alliance for Progress was something invented by Americans, for South Americans, and said to how to fix it, how to fix South America, because it's all messed up. And we, all, we know better than everybody else how to fix things. So let's just take the land away from the landowners and give it to all the peasants or the people that don't have land and, uh, and see how that works out. So basically, this this farm that she had built, raising her two daughters, you know, along with Walter, who had rescued her from Europe, uh, Walter was a Swiss guy, by the way, who had been working in Europe during the war, I mean, working in South America. And uh, she, uh, uh, and, and then they just snatch it away and hand her worthless bonds in exchange for that. But she told me, she said, but but there's always uh, a silver lining. And for her, the silver lining was they gave she and her daughters visas to come to America. And she said, she said that was better than than the price of a farm. Wow. In her mind, yeah. and she was a very, very loyal American. She, she and my daughter were very quick to become American citizens as soon as they had the opportunity to. So she moved to Marin County back when it wasn't really Marin County. It wasn't like it is today. Uh, uh, they, she bought a house for like eighteen thousand dollars on, oh, nice. on um, halfway up Mount Tamalpais, and it's the house where we were married. And uh, uh, she um uh, and she worked in in a in a school teaching fourth graders how to speak French. She spoke six languages. And she then went um, uh, she didn't like really the teaching part of things. So she became the school's gardener. And because it was a rich kid's school, they really loved the idea that they had this Dutch lady who speaks six languages going around keeping the gardens in the in the school. That was kind of one of their little sticks that they yeah. sold people on.
0: Well, I, I just, I so love this. I, I cannot recommend this book enough. Um, and I've, I've told you, Bob, that I think it really belongs on the screen. I mean, first of all, it just kind of hits the zeitgeist perfectly right now. We're looking for stories of female heroism. You don't have to make this one up. This is, you know, you, you say it's a novelization or a, it's a fictional account. And yet, you know, I know the story well enough with you. You've, you've talked me through this stuff a few times that, you know, it is at its heart this is non-fiction there these are you know many of these are really real events the hand grenades for instance that's an actual historical event here right Um, and so it just seems to me like this belongs on the big screen or on the little screen now i guess you know netflix or you know prime video or something hulu
1: uh, just an amazing story. Have I missed anything here, Bob? Well, first things first, I would say, just to remind you, that the book is actually, the launch date is actually April 4th. Oh, my god. So gosh. although you have seen the hardback version, which were delivered to my house last week, uh, the the public ha- will see it on, on, on the 4th of April, and you can go to Amazon or, or any of the other places where books are sold and buy it then. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm with you. I think it would be fun to make it into a movie, but right now we're just trying to sell some books and you know get people to read it for me the this was a a a project of love you know i just wanted to tell hetty's story to preserve her legacy and uh after us there won't be anybody to tell that tell this story uh and and i realized that if i'm gonna preserve her legacy i've got to write a book that's good enough that people want to read it And so far, so good. I've been taking it to book clubs and people like it. It's a real, they call it a page turner. I think it is a page turner. It's got a lot of excitement in it and uh, a lot of um, personal interest, you know. There's a love story in there and uh, some other stuff that's fun to read.
0: Well, a, uh, a California author, a California novel in some respects, despite the fact that it almost entirely takes place in uh, in Europe during World War II about a woman who ultimately becomes, uh, as you say, a, a very proud American and a Californian. So that's my friend Bob Lowen. He is the chairman of the board of California Policy Center, but he's here today talking about the Lioness of Leiden and uh i'll put that in the show note bob and uh, people can go check out the book themselves and i i really do encourage it. it's just
1: awesome work well done buddy thank you yeah go to the website yeah thanks
0: with me now is philip k howard he's a lawyer an author a civic leader he's the chair of common good a nonpartisan organization aimed at simplifying government from your lips to god's ears philip he grew up in uh, kentucky lives in new york city and uh You've got this amazing book, Philip, which I'm just going to say, it's it's called Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. And I I have to say, I, I committed a grievous sin. I assumed that I knew that this book would be a catalog of... Government union malfeasance and misfeasance and ineffectiveness. And it's you, you've got a lot of that in there. But it really strikes me that what you've written here is a blueprint for some smart lawyer or law firm to actually take this case up through a federal circuit, like, say, the Ninth, all the way to the Supreme Court, and ban government unions or at least our right to collective bargaining. Am I, am I close on
2: this? Yeah, completely. I mean, the, the my career was as an appellate lawyer, so um, including a bunch of Supreme Court cases. So I uh, I've written a book uh, that's designed to be to look at what public unions have done through the lens of constitutional governance, and and outline the case to be made against them, including the legal arguments. So I think that you know a good Good law firm can take these arguments and expand on some of the legal points and and file a file a complaint and take it up to the Supreme Court eventually.
0: Well, the the legal argument is the payoff for reading through a Stephen King nonfiction piece about the role of government unions <laughs> in not just california but the united states at large you early on mentioned one of my favorite quotes it's from from the uh, president the former president of united teachers los angeles who said we elect our own bosses i think that gets right to the heart of the problem and then you talk about some really interesting cases one of which is the case of derek chauvin uh the minneapolis police officer who murdered george floyd Tell us why Derek Chauvin is where you start your indictment.
2: Um, well, it, it was obviously, you know, the the the, the killing of George Floyd prompted national riots. It's a, you know, a, a terrible uh, incident. But Chauvin was thought to be a, um, a tightly wound person, sort of an odd guy, maybe somebody who shouldn't have been on the beat with a deadly weapon, uh, but the police chief in Minneapolis had no authority authority to terminate it, nor did she have the authority to reassign him. And when people looked at the disciplinary record of the Minneapolis Police Department, in the prior decade, there had been 2,600 complaints of which 12 resulted in discipline and the most severe discipline, was a forty-hour suspension. <laughs> so, so, so that gives you a sense of just how impossible it is to manage a police force.
0: And and the reason, just to zero in on it, the reason that you get, I think you said twenty-six 2600- hundred excessive force complaints and the worst the worst punishment is a 40 hour suspension. The reason for that is collective bargaining, which is the yes, yeah, your- that,
2: right. That's right. So under the agreements um, that the police union negotiates, it's basically the, the thumb is on the scale completely. The um, uh, no one can interview the officer until the passage of time. And the officer has had a chance to read every other witness statement, you know, that sort of thing. If if there's a uh, the question of discipline goes to arbitrators, the arbitrators have been approved by the union and they're not allowed to consider any prior misconduct by the officer unless it happened, you know, within the preceding year. It's that sort of thing. Just scores of little detailed rules, any one of which, and get somebody off.
0: And and you have, as I said, over a hundred pages. I would estimate of these kinds of anecdotes that that really add up to a pretty grim picture, which listeners to this podcast will be familiar with. Because California Policy Center and Radio Free California, we talk an awful lot about the influence of government unions, which are, you may know, Philip, very very powerful out here. We have the the largest number of government union members in the country. Uh, and they exercise almost total control right. over our state legislature all the way down to Main Street, city governments, school boards, you name it. Uh, maybe you can tell me if there's another anecdote that really strikes you as illustrative of the problem, or I'll just ask you to maybe pick up your book and go to page 136 and <laughs> read one of my favorite, past- you know what I'm talking about. You, well, re- yeah, yeah, yeah. I,
2: I think one of the things, though, that, that I that I have tried to do in the book is... Is not just to have a parade of horribles, but but actually break them down into categories between no accountability that explain why no accountability is important. It's not just to get rid of legions of bad employees. I assume most people who work for the government want to do the right thing. But if you have no accountability in an organization, then there's no mutual trust. Because you don't trust that the people next door will be doing their jobs because performance doesn't matter. So it it's like putting toxic gas into an, an office. So you end up getting these um, um, sort of police subcultures and school subcultures in the worst schools because everyone knows it doesn't matter what you do, and so the ripple effect is much broader. Similarly, not manage, you know, not being able to manage. Things. So when, you know, in the federal government, if you move in office, you have to subject who gets what desk to collective bargaining. If they go to a new software program, um, like, you know, a, a new version of Word, that's subject to collective bargaining. So you have this situation within government that's like the spokes have been disconnected from the hub of the wheel. So nothing can roll forward. You know, the spokes are rattling all around until the, the manager day-to-day has to negotiate with the union rep. And I don't think people had really focused in on how impossible it is to run an organization when you can't make even the smallest decisions. And so that's why I think putting this into a frame of governance I hope, at least, makes people see what's happened in a different light than simply inefficiency. It's it's uh, it's like tra- tragic waste. It's tragic ineffectiveness. It's schools that can't work and trash collection that costs two or three times what private carters do. Were there reasons for that?
0: Well, I, I love the fact, Philip, that you talk about the problem of trust or a lack of trust. And we see this all the time with people wondering, you know, why we can't have nice things. Why is this broken? And and then you get conspiracy theories about why it's broken and why people don't want it to work. Um, and, and I'm reminded of a book. You and I are both boys of a certain age. You might remember, uh, I think his name was E.J. Dionne, uh, Washington, well, I want to say Washington a- Post reporter, a writer, um, who wrote a book back in the early nineties, perhaps called why Americans hate politics. It was this long kind of stem winder about, you know, just disaffection from government and how politicians Mm -hmm. are trapped between diverse viewpoints of left and right and its ideology. But you point out that maybe the answer is simply that the the public's faith in government is broken because government can't fix anything, even when there might be otherwise widespread agreement. And the problem is government unions.
2: Yes, that's right, so you end up the parties argue about policy immigration policy, climate change, tax policy and neither party has a vision for how to make the operating machinery of government work. Most Americans are frustrated in their daily you know encounters the inability to you know fix broken infrastructure, the inability to run a school the you know, the taxes that are higher than they should be, etc. Those are not policy questions, they're operational questions. And so one of the goals of this book is not simply to have a brief for lawyers, but to introduce into the 2024 presidential election Mm -hmm. what I think is a really big and salient issue of concern to most Americans, which is how do we make government work again?
0: Love it. Let's um. Before we get into the legal brief, if you'll just humor me, pick up your book, turn to page one thirty-six, and uh, read the paragraph beginning "Federal government as noted." <laughs>
2: okay, federal government as noted is an out- is an accountability free zone. More federal employees die on the job than are terminated for poor performance. Regular stories emerge of employees who cannot be terminated despite outrageous behavior such as the EPA employee who spent the day surfing porn sites. The head of the VA hospital in Phoenix at the center of a 2014 scandal over falsified waiting times was found not accountable for, quote, lack of oversight because, as Stephen Brill recounts in Tailspin, the government failed to prove specific items of no oversight, overlooking the fact that oversight, by definition, is not limited to specific criteria. The IRS, after two years, finally removed an employee who systematically denied benefits to African immigrants, made repeated discriminatory remarks in the office, and tried to run another employee off the road. But the union lawyers who represented him required a clean personnel record as the quid pro quo for leaving, so he was soon spotted Working for the US Forestry Service.
0: <laughs> and presumably his work life was transformed and he was then a spirited uh, public <laughs> servant. <laughs> so, as I say, you've built this very compelling argument that there's an actual um, constitutional argument that government unions aren't just injurious to democracy or that maybe more vaguely they represent a threat. To the spirit of democracy, but that it, when it comes to collective bargaining, the the contracts that government unions create in negotiations with government officials, they're actually illegal. Is it fair to start a conversation about the kind of the legal blueprint you've laid out with your conversation about the inviability of sovereign power? Have I got that phrase right? Yeah,
2: th- yeah, that's right. So, so it's a basic, a first principle of of, of our constitutional government. Is that, is that no government official can delegate sovereign power to a private party. The, the, the Supreme Court said the, the power of governing is a trust given by the people, no part of which can be granted away. Uh, and this is manifested in different places in the Constitution, but the place it applies to state and local government is called the Guarantee Clause. And it's in Article 4, and it provides, the United States shall guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. And James Madison talked a lot about the Guarantee Clause in the constitutional debates. And the this explicit purpose of the Guarantee Clause is that whatever framework of democracy a state chooses to have the people who are given power must be accountable to the voters they can't give governing power to any nobles or quote favored class once you've been given the power by the voters you must retain it so that you're responsible for how government works Without any question, these collective bargaining agreements, which are not even coterminous with electoral terms, take away the power of governors and mayors. They get elected, and they have no authority to fix a lousy school. They have no authority to fire a bad cop or to try to transform a police culture. They have no authority to change the trash collection routes so it doesn't cost twice as much. It's all been laid out in these collective bargaining agreements, and then day-to-day decisions can't be made except with approval of the of the union rep. Uh, there's some unintended circumstance, like a pandemic. Oh, the collective bargaining agreement says nothing about teaching during the pandemic. How about distance teaching, remote teaching? Well, the collective bargaining agreement doesn't doesn't provide for that, so that has to be separately negotiated. You know you. you you, you know, you can't run a a deli like this, much less you know the government government of the state of California. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's um, Article Four. Tell me about you. You have you cite three articles, and I'm not a constitutional lawyer in California. Actually, I'm not a constitutional lawyer anywhere, even a lawyer. Uh, but you also mention Article Two: Executive power shall be vested in a right. president. Why is that significant in your in your case?
2: Well, I mean, there are two things significant. So, the so U.S. Constitution, as everybody knows, sets up three sources of power which check and balance each other. There's the there's the legislative branch, Congress. There's there's the executive branch, which is run by the president, and then there's the there's the judicial branch, and um, and the, the Supreme Court has interpreted. What executive power means in many cases. And they've drawn the line about where Congress can interfere with executive power. So, for example, there are a number of cases that hold that Congress can pass no law which would remove the president's, and I quote, exclusive and illimitable power to remove federal officers so that means that the statute that was passed in 1978 called the civil service reform act is clearly unconstitutional because it mandates collective bargaining and certain other provisions that make it impossible for the president to get rid of people i mean it's just oh you know, there it is And so, is, there,
0: is there a parallel case to be made at the state level for
2: a governor or a mayor even uh, yes Yes, but not under Article 2. You have to do it under the guarantee. uh, If we're talking about the federal constitution, Mm -hmm. you have to do it under the guarantee clause. So the guarantee clause, I think, should be interpreted um, when you're looking at what executive power a governor or mayor has. Well, they should have similar executive power as a president would have. That is to say, the practical power... To run government. That's what executive power is. Most states provide that executive power should be vested in the governor. I'm quite confident California does as well. So so just by analogy, the same sort of authority that's needed to manage the federal government is also needed for an elected executive to run a state government. You also
0: mention, uh, as, as I guess part three, you've got... Um Article two, Article four, and then Article six, and I found this the most interesting part of the legal argument. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, except that it uh, is it, it outlines the fiduciary responsibility of government employees. I think that's the right phrase, fiduciary. Right.
2: right. Yeah. And, so. Yeah, I'm sorry. Keep going.
0: No, I was just going to say that y- this gets at what I thought was only a kind of a nice idea. Not a legal, or even you know, certainly not a constitutional requirement. And the nice idea was, hey, you're a public servant; you ought to you ought to operate in pub with public spiritedness, uh, putting the public and your service to the public above your own personal interests. And that that seems to be sort of where Article Six goes. But uh, tell me what you you make of that?
2: Okay, so uh, until the late 1960s, it was everyone knew that public employees should not be allowed to bargain collectively against the government. FDR said the process of collective bargaining cannot be transplanted to the public service. Um, Back in the 19th century, Samuel Gompers refused to let police even talk about joining a union because it would be a conflict of interest with their duty to serve the public, to negotiate against the public. So, So this was... Not a new not a new idea. What happened is that we sort of suffered from amnesia and forgot that there was a big difference between trade union bargaining and public union bargaining. And so so what's happened is as a practical matter, is that allowing public unions to organize means that they amass political resources, get people elected. And we're talking about staffing their their campaign offices and sending buses of people to go, you know, knock on doors and stuff. They get them elected, and then they don't sit down at the other side of the bargaining table, which happens in industry. They sit on the same side of the bargaining table. It's not a negotiation. It's a payoff. in and, wow. or, and, and organizing politically to harm the government, I think, should be unconstitutional because— it's aimed at a direct breach of their fiduciary duties to, the, to, um, to, to serve the public. And uh, while I think this is correct as a matter of policy, including constitutional policy, I, I do want to say, and I say this in the book, that no Supreme Court decision has ever addressed this point.
0: And, and that's that's where I want to go next. Is uh, let's say you know some law firm decides they're going to take this thing up, and they're supported by millions of dollars. It would take to run this to the Supreme Court. Then the Supreme Court comes back with a decision mm-hmm. citing with your 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 findings basically on articles two, four, and six. If I'm not mistaken, um, what would happen next? Do you suppose would they just sort of wave a? W- in your in your dream world, what happens when they decide? <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, courts tend to be somewhat incremental, so they don't kind of slash and burn. Uh, and there are, and i and I talk about the what some of the hurdles or small leaps required in jurisprudence to win certain parts of these cases. But you know, I think they would they would say that collective bargaining um, is has to be limited to compensation not to work rules or accountability, that would be one clear line to draw. And a couple of states have done that. That's a, When Indiana got rid of collective bargaining, they, get, they didn't get rid of it completely. They kept compensation. And The same with Scott Walker's reforms in Wisconsin. You can still bargain over your salary. You just can't bargain on how to run government, you know, which is what they've done. So that's, that's one line that could be drawn. Another line, line that, that could be drawn is that the unions are not allowed to, to organize politically to, uh, to influence government, that, is, that it will always be pernicious to the public interest, even if they don't have collective bargaining power. And that's happened, there are 38 states that, that, that require collective bargaining, but even in the other states, the, the unions are influential because they have so much money. Because through collective bargaining organization, they have so much money, they can go in and effectively, you know, buy the favors of the political leaders. So I think that the the massive amount of public union money, we're talking about 7 million members of public unions in this country collecting at least $5 billion a year in dues, $5 billion. And Terry Moe from Stanford at one point found that I think the teachers' unions outspent all business groups combined in 36 states. You know, they're incredibly influential. So I think that should be unlawful.
0: I, I love the uh, Terry Mo uh, has written some wonderful stuff about uh, public education, especially, and uh, the role of the teachers' union there. He's a, he's a good Californian. Uh, so let me ask you this. If, if the unions are limited... Under your In your scenario, if the unions are, are barred from political participation, what's to keep union members as individuals from collaborating, let's call it, uh, outside of the workplace and just agreeing that they're going to bundle a bunch of cash as individuals, they wouldn't be stopped from backing a candidate or working for a campaign?
2: Um, yeah, I mean... Maybe. I mean, there are laws, in fact, you get the hatch act bars political activity by federal employees and defined in certain ways. So so you you could in fact limit that. But but I don't think that's really much of a risk. You know, when you don't have collective bargaining power and when you when the unions can't mobilize all of their members for political purposes, it, it's gonna it's hard to if you get A few dozen people together is not going to probably influence a campaign. It's when you get a few million people together that that you begin to dominate the political system. So,
0: You've you've written a a number of other books. Uh, The one that I recall for sure reading was The Death of Common Sense. Great piece of work there. How did you get interested in the problem of government unions? Do you you remember the moment when you said, holy cow, i got to write a book about this. This is terrible, and I have an idea.
2: Uh, Well, the central, my my central uh, reform idea was simplify government, uh, replace thick rule books and procedures and such with human responsibility and accountability. You don't need rule books telling people how to do things if they can be accountable when they don't do them. So it's it's a very, you know, you can get rid of a lot of red tape that way. But that doesn't work if there's no accountability. And uh, I was working with Al Gore's Reinventing Government initiative years ago, and Al Gore had really good instincts on this stuff. He wanted to simplify government and give people more responsibility, but he didn't want to take on the unions. Mm. So, so we couldn't really ultimately get too much done because you, you can't have a – you need – you know, accountability that people can trust before you're going to give them the freedom to exercise their authority as officials. So, um, you know, I kept running into that with my reforms. And finally, I uh, started looking at the public unions and say, why are we allowing this? And and so it was this book as a result.
0: Well, I'll uh, include a link to... uh places where people can buy your book. Will you uh, maybe perhaps let me put an email address up there for you so that interested listeners can contact. Great. Okay. So we'll do that in the show notes. Wonderful. Hey, any final words before I sign off for
2: us? No, I know. I love, I look forward to working with you and the California policy center and such on, on reforms. And I'm going to be out in California. Yes. In, in March. And, um, um, hope we can get together and get, Interested citizens together. It's very important for citizens to understand what a scandal this is, and to make this um, a a politically salient, you know, point of debate. Because the more people understand it, the more likely it is. Actually, the courts will be sympathetic to to fixing it.
0: That's Philip K. Howard, author of Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. That's all the time we have today. You can always find this podcast on the National Review website, but it's easier for you and better for us if you just subscribe and, of course, rate and review the show wherever you do. On behalf of my friend and co-host David Bonson, we give thanks as ever to our session producers, Brian Tong and Glenn Hall, and to all of our friends at National Review, especially podcast producer Sarah Schutte. Thanks also to Metalachi, the LA-based mariachi and metal band for our music. La Revolución continúa en la semana próxima.